Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Throughout your career as a developer, you're likely to work at some well-established companies as well as some that are just getting started. You may even start your own company at some point. Working as or with entrepreneurs, no matter your role, has a unique set of challenges and rewards. We've brought on David Hirschfeld, someone who has both been an entrepreneur and worked with them to see their vision come to reality. And he's going to talk to us about how to succeed in the startup environment. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I have been paying for my sins. Um, I have a large amount of stuff going on in a database, and it just got a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. And then it got a little bit more complicated again. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ever going to get out, (laughs) to be honest. Um, I have somewhere north of 100 stored procedures that I have to change again um, for new requirements for the system. And so that's basically all I'm doing. I'm now a SQL developer until I escape. So, (laughs) yeah, that's life (laughs) right now. Ouch. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm way better. I see stuff I wrote in October and I'm like, who wrote this junk? And it's like, oh yeah, I've moved up the learning curve a lot. And I've been, I've been using it since 6.5, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm brand new to SQL, but I have learned so much just in the last you know, four or five months that it's unbelievable. So yeah, that's what I've been fighting this week and I have not entirely been winning. So how about you, David? So I'm uh, with one of my clients right now. We're building in a visualization piece. So this is a a law enforcement customer um, where he's basically built a system that takes all of the details that normally go on in really complex investigations with like federal investigators um, and the vehicles and the wiretaps and the in-flights and, you know, 20 or so different categories of information, they go all go into the system. They all get related and fixed and in loose ways. And then they use that information then to drill down and create relationships. But what we don't have is a really good kind of like graph uh, style network diagram. So we're in the process of building that right now. And very cool because now all of a sudden all this data just comes to life. Nice. That's really neat. Yeah, I'm hoping I get some sort of experience that feels that way at the end of my, <laughs> my trials and tribulations. Well, it might be a while if you're stuck in stored procedures. Yeah. So I've been dealing with uh, file transfer issues at work this past couple of weeks. So I take it back. I think that trumped your stored procedures. <laughs> <It does. laughs> uh, uh, so we are in the process of digitizing decades of paper files, um, saving a lot of money in just physical storage space and everything. But um, so I wrote an app that moves files from a NAS to the long-term storage that we have. Uh, And it's going through the testing process and stuff um, like that right now. There's a couple of things I didn't really think about 
when I wrote it, like, you know, network latency, because transferring files from one folder to another, no matter the size on my local machine works just fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, so I've been, I've been dealing with that. I actually worked on that some this morning, got, got most of it resolved. I, I sent it out to him. And uh, this afternoon I got an email back saying, Hey, it's working great. You know, we, we uploaded all these files over a hundred megs and it only took like two or three minutes. I'm like, yes, <laughs> the, the old system that they were using uh, was not written by a developer. It was written by a uh, business analyst who did, I'll be honest for someone that's not a developer. He did a great job. Like he had a lot of issues, but I'm impressed with the work he did because he really put some effort into it. Anyways, it's it's quite nice. Uh, on a happier front, session two of my cover up was last week. According to when we're recording this, the interesting thing is session three is going to be the week before this episode comes out. So, uh, what are you conspiring to cover up? You might ought to tell the audience that they I've talked about it in previous episodes. But yes, um, uh, my tattoo cover up, uh, it's uh, covering the, uh, well, I'll give you guys the advice I've given so many young couples recently. Don't ever get matching tattoos with anyone Ooh. because that person Ooh. may not be in your life in a few years. <laughs> hey, that's at least actually, that's good advice. That's yeah, good yeah. advice. Yeah. I'm just glad I didn't get a name. I don't have to worry about that. But uh, yeah, well, the problem is like I go in to get the cover up and everybody at the tattoo place is like, why are you wanting to cover that up? It's beautiful. I'm like, I know it's awesome. That's why I've waited so long to actually get anything done on it. But I'm kind of tired of like looking at myself in the mirror every morning and being reminded, oh, hey, you know, so anyways, it's it's really cool. It's um, a Celtic cross with a lot of um, just personal stuff in there and involved in like the the wrap around it. It's kind of turning a shoulder tattoo into a half sleeve. So it's it's really cool. I'm I'm really excited about it. Yeah, and they can do such a great job now. You get a good artist mm-hmm. and to I, turn that into something different. Yeah, I, I've taken my time finding one and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really happy with the guy I've got. Uh, and it's not as expensive as I thought it would be. So I actually got to buy some artwork that I've been wanting to buy uh, because I'd saved up for the tattoo. And I was like, oh, it's not as expensive as I thought. So this really is a happy story. Yes, it is. It is. (laughs) (laughs) So um, all that said, guys, uh, we're going to hop on into uh, what we're now calling book club. So the second half of the Elements of Computing Systems focuses on the software hierarchy. It starts with a chapter on assembler, and throughout chapter six, you're going to build an assembler that generates binary code to run on the hardware built in the first half of the book. This is really cool because now you're getting to control the things that you've actually built. Chapters 7 and 8 talk about building a compiler so that you can create high-level code that will compile down and then be translated by your assembler that you built in Chapter 6. These focus on the idea of running the intermediate code on a virtual machine, hence the titles of the chapter, Virtual Machine, Part 1, Part 2. 
next week, we'll conclude the overview of Elements of Computing Systems, and I'll announce the next book we're going to go through. Will, who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed an iTunes review from Vane CL saying, Great podcast. I'm a newbie web developer, and I've learned so much from Will and BJ. This podcast is full of valuable information and insight. Great show. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Vane. We're really glad that you enjoy the show. We love putting it together each week. Um, it's rewarding to know that we're helping people and that even newbie developers get something out of what we're doing. Send us an email with your contact information to neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a Complete Developer water bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can check us out each week where we do a live show talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering some listener questions. Or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Shouldn't it be neckbeard? <laughs> we used to both have them. That's oh, is that funny. where that came from? Yeah. And it was a joke and now we're stuck with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. I like that. That's honestly that's that's a um, explanation for a surprising number of things in our lives. Really, yeah. I'm sure after four years of doing this, that would be true. Mm. Yeah. As developers, we work with various clients to build the technology for their business. Sometimes we even get to work on our own business ideas. While we may not all have the Silicon Valley lifestyle, we will see businesses come and go. We'll see ideas within a business come and go as well. We may even get to be part of that process. We've brought David Hirschfield on to talk with us about his experience in the industry. We're going to share the insights he's gained about what makes a successful entrepreneur or intrapreneur and how that can be you, your clients, or the person you work for. David Hirschfeld's software career spans 33 years with expertise in executive management, business management, software development and strategy, workflow automation, technical architecture, and user experience engineering. In the late 80s through early 90s, David provided business development and technology consulting for both commercial and government sector businesses related to IBM data center automation with Computer Associates and Texas Instruments, as well as consulting engagements on projects for several Fortune 200 companies. In the early 90s, David founded and operated VSS, an inventory management and route logistics software company. Over the next eight years, the company grew its customer base to over 800 companies in 22 countries until it was ultimately acquired in 2000 by a publicly held Canadian logistics firm, where he remained for two years as VP of product strategy. In 2006, David founded Techies Incorporated, a software design and development firm focused on user experience visualization, responsive web and mobile app development, as well as workflow automation. He has helped design, plan, manage, and implement projects for a broad range of startups, including existing businesses across many sectors. This includes e-commerce, sales lead management, medical systems, internet auctions, real estate, logistics, and inventory management, social networking, mobile gaming platforms, law enforcement, accounting and finance, streaming technology, and many others. David is also the chief technology officer and a managing board member of Anzu, uh, that's anzumedical.com, originally a 
Techies customer. Anzu has quickly become the leader as a surveillance monitoring platform of implantable products for the aesthetic surgery ecosystem by combining IoT, medical data aggregation, business intelligence, and workflow automation. So that is like really fascinating to me. Um, I didn't tell you before we got on the show, but uh, before I got into tech, I was in medical school and I was originally looking to get into medical technology um, here in Nashville. There's a lot of companies, um, a lot of healthcare companies that have their tech centers here. And so that's the direction I thought my career was going to go uh, before I got into government work. And uh, I actually love what I'm doing now, but uh, IoT is a hobby of mine. And so I think what you guys do there is like, I looked it up. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it, it is pretty cool. So David, we really like to hear people's origin stories. Uh, mm-hmm. So the first question we like to ask anyone that comes on is, how did you first get into technology? All right. So my my story is a little circuitous in terms of it didn't, you know, it started one way, took a, a veer off a different direction, and then ended up back into technology. So I, when I was in high school, and, I'm, you know, I'm older, so we this was really before computers were significant in any way in the uh, late 70s, I, uh, our high school, because I went to school in Be- Beverly Hills, we were one of the few high schools in the whole country that had a computer system. Back then, you had to have a system for your school because there wasn't a such thing as a PC or a laptop or anything like that. And I just got, was fascinated with uh, programming. Um, you know, there were just a handful of us in the school that really, really caught on to this, but I like couldn't sleep at night thinking about how to how to write code for this thing. And then I uh, went to UCLA and uh, uh, went and it was a step backwards from that because I was having to learn how to program uh, PL1 on punch cards and quickly lost interest after I dropped two shoe boxes of programs <laughs> <laughs> that I had not numbered. So um, uh, and then I went, went into physics. And then from there, I ended up going into technology sales, which is how I ended up with Computer Associates and Texas Instruments. I was doing sales for IBM mainframe software for Computer Associates and then for government sector sales for Texas Instruments. But I was always frustrated because the systems engineers who did all the technical presentations, I had to schedule them in advance, far in advance. And this was right at the time where the first laptop came out. So I bought my first PC just a couple years before uh, and started to re-educate myself in terms of programming and computers. And then, uh, uh, and then I bought the, one of the very, the very first laptop on the market. It was a compact laptop, you know, that flips open and I get on an airplane to go meet with a customer like Sprint and, and everybody on the plane would come up to me and say, can I see that? It was the, I mean, you look at it now and you can't even imagine that you can <laughs> compute something on those devices. But back then that was magic to everybody. Um, but I was frustrated having to schedule the system engineers for the presentations because they weren't as technical or as good at doing the presentations as I wanted them to be. Uh, so I just started learning the technology myself so I could do all my own presentations. And then eventually with Texas Instruments, I was doing all my own prototype development for this was like a million dollar um, um, called case uh, computers uh, aided systems engineering systems that generated code. First, it was COBOL, and then it was C++, and first, you know, it was green screen stuff, and then eventually it was generating Windows stuff. This is when Windows was really young. 
anyway, so and then I left there and I started to uh, do contracting for um, Intel and Motorola, and because I was the only one in the, in the Phoenix area at the time that knew the beta tools, how to use these beta tools with IEF, which was the name of the product, um, or I was one of very few people. And so uh, uh, that got me started. And then I started my software company, the one that you were talking about, the logistics and route, route logistics and route distribution company. And then the rest was kind of history. And it's been technology ever since. I, I like that origin story. That's, uh, yeah, that is cool. That is, that is really awesome. Uh, I, I think it's... Uh, it's really neat that uh, you, it sounds to me like you were a tech evangelist before tech evangelists were a thing. So uh, we have some friends um, and fellow podcasters that are, their day job is tech evangelism. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they, they put together presentations and samples and things like that to go around and show companies, go to conferences, things like that. And that's just... It's really cool. I think it's a fascinating thing to do. Well, and, and for example, with my clients even now, um, you know, I have to tech evangelize things. For example, this, this uh, network diagram, you know, taking SQL database and then converting it to a graph database so that we can uh, uh, display real-time, t- real very actionable information in a visual, meaningful way. But that was something that my client had never thought of before. Um, so, although I, I got to be honest, um, making it sound like I did such a great job selling him, all I had to do was sh- like breathe it to him and show it to him, and he was like all over it, wanting to go that direction. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes tech evangelism can be really easy when the solution is so obvious, when the technology is such an obvious solution to a problem, and then other times, like when I was uh, uh, selling IEF, this million-dollar software development platform and you had to get buy-in from you know fortune 500 companies and you had to get buy-in from like 50 different people before that you had enough consensus to push it over the top mm-hmm. that's a whole different kind of evangelism yeah and i think the coolest thing is when you when you explain something to somebody that solves a major pain point for them like that mm-hmm. that look they get on their face when their eyes light up when they know that the problem can go away Mm-hmm. That's that's the win in any kind of sales thing. Like that's that's the that's the most satisfying thing for at least I would assume for you guys too, right? Yeah, it is for me with my clients when, uh, or sometimes I'm just talking with somebody uh, who isn't necessarily a client, but they've got struggling with a problem. They didn't realize it was a problem that could be solved with technology, and I start talking about ways to solve it, like workflow automation. That's where workflow automation really comes in and their eyes get big like really i can do that some of these things i'm thinking well yeah it's this is not that, this is not a big stretch but they but to them this is n- completely new information yeah and, it's yeah. it's like being a uh, stage magician or something i mean you just know the yeah. tricks and all of a sudden you know your audience is just locked in like it's it's the best feeling in the world Right. That for somebody. Yeah. And sometimes there's simple, simple solutions too. That's one of the really cool things is when you can do something really simple for, for a client or um, in my world for, for another division that is asking for something. And it's like, oh, yeah, I can do that here. Let me show you this, this potential solution. And they're like, wow, I never even thought of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this line of helping clients be successful, 
when you're working with clients, what signs do you, do you know of, do you see that point to them being successful? All right. This is a, a really good question and one I feel really close to now, especially having worked with a lot of startup companies over the last 13 years, uh, in, in addition to my own startup companies before and after. Uh, so I, I have some companies uh, that I work with who have just been incredibly successful, and they all have the same uh, characteristics. Um, and it's not limited to this but this is a good indicator that you're not going to be lucky, but you're actually going to be successful. Um, uh, one is that they, what they're trying to automate is something that they are in their own industry that they're working with. Like uh, the, one of my customers, a Broadway producer, and, and this was, and he, we automated the idea of how they produce plays. So he knew exactly what the difficulties were. And, he, and so when he knew what he needed to do, to when you automate something like that, how it had to work so that it would now make his life easy. And by making his life easy, it's going to make everybody's life easy that's in stage production of any kind, right? And because he's in the industry, he has, he's connected with everybody in that industry. And so he has reach and he knows who to talk to and how things get marketed, at least at a certain level. So what I say to people is when, if they know the, the, business area of the product that they want to develop, um, they, they know the end user. They know what the end user needs to be successful with that software. They may not understand the market, but they understand the user. They can figure out the market over time as they start to market the product. So that's one. And uh, um, uh, the, the second thing is, is that they are connected in with the... So those are the two things. Do so they understand that market because they're one of the users of that in that market. So they understand the users and they know... That they know how to connect into the market, such as the you know trade shows and uh, marketing platforms and things, because they're consuming that stuff, looking for their own products for other things that they might do. You have those ingredients, um, and the chances that you'll be successful at some level are are really very high. If you don't have those, you just have some cool idea because you think it's it, that everybody's going to need this then it, you might get lucky and it might be that cool idea that everybody does need. But more often than not, it's that cool idea that was a cool idea. But trying to figure out how to get the world engaged around it is a whole another animal. And most of those startups don't, most of those guys don't usually make it. You get lucky when you get Tinder or you get um, uh, Facebook or, you know, people that were not necessarily in an industry, but they just had the right idea at the right time. They're just, such a minute fraction of the world. But the people that are doing something in an, a business area that they're really familiar with and they know that this solves their problem, they have a, then their chances of being successful are dramatically higher. Yeah, that matches what I've seen as well. Like there's, there's so many people out there building apps and they don't have a customer. You know, like mm -hmm. the common advice that I hear is get somebody that will pay for the thing before you even start building it because that right. makes people not do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go pre-sell it. And right. if you can get people, do some nice mock-ups, get somebody to commit to buying it or even pay for it on a discounted because they can see really beautiful mock-ups so they know what the, the app's going to look like. And if you get people buying that, you've got a good chance you're going to sell it. But even if you don't do that, like I was saying, if you're in a business domain that you really understand the user and you're solving your own problem at first and now you know and you know that your problem's common with the, your user community your chances of people wanting to pay for that is as long as the problem is significant enough um are pretty high 
Yeah. And that, I guess that, you know, that brings up the next thing is how do you know when the, when a problem is significant enough, you know, for somebody else, like, you know, Beej and I, when we were recording the podcast, like there's certain things that really annoy the daylights out of us, you know, just in podcast audio production and all that. Well, they mainly annoy Beej, but I get messages about it. Um, Which annoys you. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's transitive annoyance, but um, you know, there's stuff that you know that annoys you, but how do you determine what is a big enough problem to put on somebody else and go, okay, how do I, you know, if I create a solution for this thing, how do I know that it's a big enough issue that somebody will pay? Um, if it's, well, let's say this more that if it's an annoying issue, but it's not really costing you in any, in any measurable way, like the amount of time that it costs you is trivial or, or the, um, uh, or the inconvenience is trivial, but it's just annoying. Then it's going to be really probably difficult to find other people that are annoyed enough to pay for that. If, but if it, but if it's really uses up a lot of your time, uh, uh, you know, enough that you would, you know, that you would pay money to get that, to solve that problem. And you know that there aren't other products on the market that easily address this issue. Then, you know, it's worth taking it. And depending on the cost of building the product, it's probably worth taking a shot and, uh, and developing that or getting somebody to develop it for you. Um, uh, because, because if, because you're not alone. As long as you've done a little research in the market and you've looked for something to solve that problem yourself and you can't find it, then then you probably have a very large market of people just like you that if there is a product out there, it's not easy enough to find that they'll be able to find it. And you give the, and you make this available to them. And you don't have to be the first. You just have to be easy and available and have a and know how to talk in that network of people that have the same problem. And then you will be successful. Yeah. Um I know the Facebook groups are really great for this. Uh, yeah. I'm in several, talking about uh, audio stuff, I'm in several audio production Facebook groups and in uh, several podcasting Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. And like I, I can see where people's pain points are because it's based on the questions they ask, hey, how do you guys do this? What service do you use for this? Exactly. The same questions over and over again. And if those products don't exist for that, then you know you've got something worth that people will pay for. Yeah, and if you've got the the wording they use, you've got stuff to use in your marketing materials and your SEO for those problems too. That's which, actually huge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So along those lines, mm -hmm. um, when you're building something or paying someone to build something for you, you want something to get out the door first, a, a minimum viable product. Yeah. Oh, How do yeah. you define that for your client you, or for yourself if you're the one building it? As you define it as small as possible. This is the most difficult thing for startups. And it's even hard for me, and I've been doing this forever and defining these forever. It's very hard to say we can live without that. Okay, first, that it's, it's important to understand the purpose of an MVP, uh, MVP, minimal viable product. Uh, because most people think that that's the least amount of something that somebody can use and will pay for. But that's not the purpose of an MVP. It's the smallest thing you can build to deliver some kind of value for the purpose of validating that the market wants that or wants something else. You don't, the MVP isn't for making money. So when you put an MVP out, if you don't make a dime on it, that's fine. If it, if you if you give it to people free and you can see engagement and they're using it and they're giving you feedback to say yes this is what i needed or no this isn't what i needed but if you add this then that will be the product i need that's its purpose 
because what people do is they build what they think the market wants. Um, and they build a lot of what they think the market wants and they spend a fortune on this. And there's some people that have what I call can't pull the trigger syndrome where they just keep adding feature and feature and they won't stop. And this can go on for a couple of years, even for something that could have been, uh, you know, an MVP that could have gone out within six months. It doesn't, people are afraid of the, of putting the wrong impression out there of creating the wrong momentum. These are all, this is, these are all fallacies. It doesn't matter what people think of that first product. It's not going to affect their success unless, uh, uh, and what's going to affect their success is that they don't get the right product to people and start selling something that people will consume and want. So that's the purpose. The biggest thing is MVP should be really little. Its purpose is to get people to see that people want to use that and validate what your assumptions were. And if they don't, what's wrong with it? It's because then, you, and is it fixable? And if it is, then you, put out you might have to put out another kind of mvp plus and get validation now you say yeah i like this this is good i it definitely has enough value it's worth paying a subscription model or you, you say what if i started charging you and say i'd pay it or what if i took it away no don't take it away you know just whatever validation you need now you know you still build on top of that oh i i completely get that because that app that i was talking about uh, mm-hmm. earlier that's in uh, in testing right now mm-hmm. i gave them an mvp of what based on what they told me they needed mm-hmm. and they got it and they said oh but we need to put validation in here to make sure that the the information we're passing in the searchable information for this file is correct mm-hmm. and i was like oh didn't realize that was part of the mvp had to go back and rebuild we'll just add on but yeah I, like that was a whole process like when you were describing that i was thinking yes i went through that exact thing mm-hmm. the last few weeks of i put it out there i said here's an mvp they're like oh well it's nice, but we can't really use it because this is what we need to be a true, like the basics of what we need. Now, yeah. what would happen if it went out without that validation piece? Would that have put them at real risk in some way? Would mm-hmm. that have killed the product in some way? Yes. If they tried to put it, oh, well, then that is, then, then that is correct. Then that would be the sign of it's not an MVP yet. If it, there's some, if there's some critical success, uh, critical survival factor that isn't part of it, um, then it's not an MVP. So you need these critical survivable things to get feedback. Now you could take what they did and just start to demo it to the end user community with the idea of getting feedback from them to mm-hmm. see, uh, do we build the thing that you guys want before you go investing in that validation, the data validation piece or search validation piece. So, but I always, I keep asking my customers that, like, what happens if it goes out and people don't, and I'm, people don't really think this is the right product? What's your risk? You know, if the risk is true, if it's truly a critical risk, one that they can't recover from, which that's also a hard thing for them to assess, right? But um, if it's a critical risk and they can't recover from it for some reason, like maybe in a state, state government, that could possibly be the case, right? Because management will just can the project if you put the wrong thing in front of them. So that might be a critical risk factor. But this is the hardest thing for most people to do. I have some customers that are what I, I they're just insightful and about this and they understand that they can live without 90% of what they want it to be. And they'll put out something really simple in a few months that has hardly any functionality, but is the basic concept. And those people always end up building something different and, and they end up creating a business that looks different than what they originally thought it was going to be. 
Yeah. But that's so. But they do it quickly because they're willing to iterate fast and get well, feedback. You know that kind of matches um, some things that I you know I've learned over the years. You know, working with a few startups is like it's almost like your MVP is the price you pay to get feedback from a lot of people that are interested. Yeah. Like you got to get that out there in front of them, and that's how you buy their time to to get mm-hmm. their attention and get real usable feedback from them. Because otherwise, it's just a kind of an ephemeral idea. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? And it's in the same category as saying, wouldn't it be nice if I won the lottery versus wouldn't it yep. be nice if I had that $100 that's sitting right there? So I take uh, the MVP uh, process to, in, in two phases. The first phase is we uh, we only do high fidelity mockups at Techies. I, you know, wire, the idea of wireframes is great. You can, you know, get a design and it looks good and it, and it's appealing and all that. And you see these complex wireframe flows. I don't know about you. I'm not smart enough to be able to imagine the actual behavior of the application looking at one of those things, no matter how sophisticated those things are. In fact, the more sophisticated they are, the harder it is to do. So we do. And just a click-through mock-up isn't enough. It's got to be a really a high-fidelity prototype. You know, we use a, a tool called Axure for that. And you can build products that look like a real end end product when you're done and it behaves and it flows exactly like the finished product but it's all but it's done with mockups and some uh, some logic and anim- logic in the animation and um, and in uh, you know four six five weeks depending on the uh, complexity of it we can end up with something that looks like a finished product and you can take that and start getting feedback from and doing demos and also showing it to investors and now the investors Potential, their confidence that you're going to deliver a real product is really high because it looks like you've already done it. It looks like you've already finished it and they like what they see. That's still not an MVP. And that, and that we would actually build much more detailed, like three or four versions out so that you can get the whole feel for the, for the end result that you're trying to go after long term. And also you want to impress investors and, and get feedback about the direction. Going. Then you, then you, and we don't start any development until that's finished. Because this also becomes a, a great documentation for the developers so that they're not making any misconceptions about the, how the app needs to behave. Now, obviously, architecturally is a whole different issue, but in terms of just behavior, the user engagements, it's a lot of the apps we do have a big user engagement component. And then we start building. And now we can build the MVP to just a piece of that, the most important piece, so we can get something in front of people, they actually start using it. So something that I've heard will complain about is like mocking up a data structure with an access database just to get it get something up and show hey here's what we're think the direction we're thinking of going and then the client says okay use that and so how do you address that issue with them when you you have this this kind of mock-up like that and they're like all right well just use what you got there yeah, well, I got it used to get in trouble with it, but now I, I level set and set expectations right at the beginning. I said, the first thing we're going to do is go through a design process and build a prototype, uh, build high fidelity prototype. Nothing in the prototype is usable. It's not a real program. And I'll say this over and over again until they never question it again. So that by the end of it, but I said, but you can use this to demo to people. And mm-hmm. so they do. So, uh, but I did used to have that problem. Yep. It's got done. They didn't understand why it's going to be three more months or four more months. I say, wait, it's our, it's done. What, what did you show me? Just use that. You know, just there's nothing there we can use. It's not. It's yeah. just pretty looking. It well, looks I, like a real system, but it's just pretty. 
you know, I think that kind of that underscores why you want to make sure that you don't use a real programming environment for some of that kind of stuff is because you get trapped that way. Whereas if oh, you yeah. use a, a mock-up tool, um, I've done the same thing with uh, Balsamic and I've, I've mm-hmm. got friends that are currently using uh, tools like Airtable. Mm-hmm. So they can kind of, they can do a little bit of database access and they can say, here's kind of how it flows mm-hmm. um, without it being a real thing. Um, the trick with the Airtable stuff is, is some of them will use that, you know, to get going um, especially if they've got like a lot of data entry that needs to happen on the front end, they'll get mm-hmm. that spun up and then they'll switch over to building the app and then they move the data from Airtable. But yeah, right. that seems like that has been a pain point. Um, yeah. Probably a half a dozen apps I've worked on that have, you know, they're supposed to be in like .NET and they're supposed to be all nice and web-based. And it's like, yeah, it's a piece of junk access database mm-hmm. that we never escape. Right. <laughs> right. You never escape. Yeah. Well, that's why I like um, Axure because it doesn't use any data on the back end. It's all in the tool. It's not real data. It's just uh, primitive value lists that you build into the controls and you can have them react to the particular data that you select and other controls. So you make it look like it is behaving exactly like a real app, except that you create kind of user stories and you you guide the flow that way um because you can actually make it so it'll support every user story but it's it's too much work then now you're building too much into a mock-up tool i used to use balsamic it's just not sophisticated enough you end up with a thousand versions of the same screen to show all the different variations of something yeah the reason i used it was because the uh it very clearly looks like drawings and nobody wants their app to look like that right you know, it's either that or you use like just really ugly colors or something that forces them not to, um, you know, not to, to fixate on it. Right. It's kind of like lips. You have um, a lower lipsum, you know, text, and then you have uh, uh, really ugly colors so that <laughs> yeah. so they're not paying attention to that. So on the flip side of that, mm-hmm. yeah. what do you do when you present this to the client and they want more or you start building it and they come in and they're like, they ask for more and kind of the the scrum term scope creep. Yeah, that's actually a term that predates scrum by probably a hundred years. But yeah, because uh, <laughs> yeah, I can remember it before scrum too. Yeah, <laughs> I think it predated technology actually. Um, uh, there's some people that that require a tremendous amount of management and. You know, what I hope to do whenever I get a new client is I vet them as much as they're vetting me. And so before I agree to take on a, a project, I want to make sure that we're the right kind of partners for each other. Most, most of the, you know, I'd say 80% of the time they are, but 20% of the time they're not. And, uh, and I'll, you know, there's projects that I won't take just because I don't think that I'll be able to work with that client because, um, uh, for whatever reason, you know, usually it's just because they don't think logically. They're struggling with. Uh, they're too verbose and pedantic and detailed, and and they think that every little, many tiniest little things matter. There are certain tiny things that are really do matter. Like if there's pixels off on a screen and you don't have columns that line up, and little, you know, even if they're pixel off, those kinds of things matter. That's not the kind of stuff I'm talking about. It's the, it's you know, it has to do with like features and behavior of an app and you just get a feel you know for people or if they're but don't feel that the integrity is there they're not honest there's certain you know certain kind of clients that i'll stay away from but i digress on that whole thing the 
point of the point I'm trying to make is that there's just some clients that do demand a lot and they're willing to make the investment because this is a representation of who they are. Uh, not just a product that they want to put out, but that's, you know, there's ego wrapped up in it and all that. And I, re- and I re- respect that and I understand that. And so we just build a lot more into that first version. Actually, my uh, Broadway client was one of those. He's wildly successful with his product, but he knew what he needed because he, uh, because he works in this world all the time. And so he built a pretty big product right from day one. His MVP was, was a big complex product. Um, and sometimes you just have to work with those people. But I always question them and say, Does, how critical is this? Does this really need to be in the first version? What's the risk if this goes out, uh, if the product goes out without this? Um, are you absolutely sure that users will not, will not survive, be able to use, there's no use, they won't be able to use the product in any effective way without this. And if they are convinced of that, then you go forward with it. So what else do you use besides that to figure out what's critical? Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that um, maybe isn't, uh, you know, totally critical, but you're going to need it before, you know, a 1.0 release. How do you prioritize those things? You know, what's your past the MVP point? So I, what I do is the very first thing I do with clients, sometimes, often even before their clients, like after just a first meeting, I invest a lot of time with a client prior to even contracting them or engaging them. Um, because, you know, it's up to me to invest in them because they're going to now make a long-term commitment and I want to make sure they're a good partner too. So I'll do a requirements document, you know, high-level requirements. And I'll try to, and I'll spend hours with them to really understand what it is they're trying to build. And then I'll document all that and send it back to them. Is this what you want? And as, and, but this is like many releases, you know, on into the future. And I'll tell them this is, uh, and then I say, when they say, yeah, this is it. And then I say, okay, let's go back through this now and scope this into a roadmap. What's the MVP. And then we step back through that and try to identify the MVP out of there. And then, and I'll ask them, why is that important? Is what's the, the business value to this uh, component? And then I'll, at that point, usually I engage them. And I also like to do a lean canvas or a business canvas. Are you guys familiar with those? Yes. Okay. So I like to do a, either lean canvas or business canvas, usually a lean canvas, because I just think it's better for startups um, on their business because they're one of the things that helps them identify the MVP is understanding who they're targeting initially. Mm-hmm. And until they do this lean canvas, they think they're targeting everybody that might use it. And so we say, okay, break this into your <laughs> 10 different mm-hmm. targets, right? And let's pick the one, the two, the two or three you think are the most important targets and let's do a lean canvas for each. And then they, and then they realize, oh, out of those three, there's one. That's going to be the least expensive to market to. It's going to have the highest value. It's going to, and it becomes very easy. Now we're building the MVP for that target. And that makes it much easier for them to accept a, a more lean product. Going along with this, when you are getting that product to market and when you're one of the things about getting that, that first version, that 1.0 out is you want to get it out fast. Mm-hmm. And sometimes scalability is not one of your priorities. Right. How do you work with your clients or how do you work when you're planning to scale an app 
but you're also trying to get that app out as fast as possible. So uh, uh, I, I always try to explain to clients when they're doing an MVP that scalability, don't worry about scalability right now because it costs a lot of money to make a product scalable. It costs a lot of time and effort, right? To make it really scalable. Um, and of course, it depends on the product that they're building. In the I mean, we want to build something that's efficient, that can handle a reasonable number of users, but just with the idea that this is a starter app. Because what if they're not successful? They just made all that investment in something that, or if they realize their business is diff ends up being different and they don't need the scalability that we spend all... Again, it's an MVP issue, right? So, but once, but as long as we architect the product well, decently, then we can start to in, involve it into a scalable architecture afterwards. Um, and we know what areas of the app need to be scaled and need to be architected. Like, you know, obviously we want to take the things that are the pieces of the app that are going to be the, uh, uh, the choke points. So, so Michael Dell, when he was building Dell computers, uh, I always think about this when I'm thinking of scalability. Uh, he was interviewed on Forbes magazine and the interviewer asked him, so what is it is your, what's your secret to success? And he said, well, I just look for the bottleneck and that's where all my attention goes. Because as soon as I fix whatever's causing that bottleneck and opens up, now everything flows into whatever the next bottleneck is. And that's kind of how you have to look at the scalability issue. If you're in the rare, uh, the rarefied air of an Instagram or an Tinder or, you know, one of these apps, you're going to run into tons of problems as the thing grows out uh, beyond what you can handle capacity. And that's a wonderful problem to have. That's just not what most people struggle with, right? I mean, Facebook was crashing every 10 minutes uh, sometime in like the end of the first year while they were trying to figure out how to build a, you know, a memory, a back-end cache for the system back before there was things like Redis and RabbitMQ and, you know, all the, yeah. you know, and microservices architecture stuff, right? So, um, uh, and, but they seem to somehow recover from that, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what I try to tell people. Don't worry about scalability yet. We won't, we won't build this. So it has to be thrown away and rewritten, you know, but we're going to, but you are going to rewrite pieces of this as you realize that certain aspects of the app are going to need to sit in as independent services that can be, you know, asynchronously called in a microservices with some kind of queuing architecture and, you know, you'll put your cache. I mean, all this stuff can come later. This doesn't have to, it doesn't need to start there. And, you know, and then I can show them what it looks like when you, when we do scale something, because we have some, you know, big scalable architecture apps that we've built that can handle millions of users. Yeah, that, that is pretty good. I mean, I, I've worked on apps that have had to scale and doing it ahead of time. I've, very seldom ever seen that work. It's usually way better if you just go, okay, where is this thing causing pain? And then you fix it, which that sounds like right. that's what your strategy is. So speaking yeah. of strategies that tend to be uh, maybe a little bit more uh, tailored to what you see out there when the app goes live, uh, at what point do you bring in things like you know big data, machine learning, all that kind of stuff? Okay, so uh, it just depends. You know, it just depends on the product that the client's trying to build. Sometimes the product's a big data product, like with the product that we built for my my other business, uh, where we're collecting medical data, uh, put an IoT device out 
to plastic surgeon's office, then it pulls 15 years of history back from the practice management system right after they plug it into the network. And on the back of the device, they put in a code, which we give them that tells the system this what office this is now connected. It's the only thing time they ever touch the thing. And now we have a two-way connection and uh, uh, we test the connection to the database and then it grabs 15 years of all their practice management history and then grabs data every night after that. So this is a big data project. That was the whole purpose. So we had to so in that case, big data was right at the very beginning, a critical success factor. Um, business intelligence is, was a critical success factor. Um, uh, uh, but um, um, AI and predictive anal- analytics and things like that, machine learning, those weren't critical success factors at that point. Those came later after we had the big data and we were able to sh- prove that we could sell this data to industry. And after we realized that there were other ma- other uh, companies that needed the data for other reasons or needed application enhancements to this for other reasons and that that was a, so this thing just kept evolving and evolving and and so we started bringing in more sophisticated technology and we continue to or other products like my law enforcement product so we uh, uh, you know built the basic product first and then there was a big DEA pilot that went on for 18 months and they were hugely successful uh, I just did a case study on that and then uh, now uh, but he built this uh, now this was funny because we had a conversation we started this three and a half almost four years ago and I recommended he build this as a cloud-based system and he just felt in law enforcement they're going to be too much concern about data privacy issues and um, and so we built it as a uh, as a windows client server application of course now the clients want it a cloud-based version because that's the whole world's gonna so we're rewrite we're just starting just starting now uh, rewriting it uh, so that we have a cloud base so we'd have both versions because there will be some people in the process of doing that we are starting to identify the other pieces like the data visualization and I was just had a conversation with him today about um, about planning at some point at the end of this year to start doing some prototyping for some machine learning models where it can start to predict behaviors of, 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 um, uh, people who are targeted uh, for investigation based on the patterns of uh, history and the people they're talking to and um, and start to predict who they may call and and or maybe see certain patterns of people communicating with each other that the investigators might not see that indicates there's just, they just had an event like maybe there was a a big drug purchase or a drug sale and every time that happens there's kind of a network of people that all get engaged in certain way and, you know and machine learning can start to find all these patterns uh, um, and and surface it and then create some predictions, actionable predictions around this. So he got all excited when I was bringing this up. So, right, but this will be four years into this project before we start talking about, uh, you know, actually starting to prototype machine learning stuff. So it just, it really depends on the project. People that think that they should do a startup and machine learning has to go into it right from the very beginning and it's a da- and it's a dating app or something. It's like, come on, <laughs> you know, this build site, Tinder didn't have any of that and it was wildly successful. So build something mm-hmm. that's more interesting than Tinder and then, then we can talk about machine learning. Uh, another thing that a lot of people really are into is automation. And you talked earlier about automating workflows and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when working with or working for a, a startup, um, when do you bring this up? Well, okay, so so <laughs> I, automating workflows for me is one of the more 
gratifying things that I get to talk with people about because it's always a surprise to them that they can get efficiency and buy back time, you know, in their business. Uh, and this is usually with people that already have a business running. So um, I'll give you an example. So there's a uh, a group that I uh, a networking group that I I work that I um, participate in, and they um, it's really a business, not really a networking group, business community. But anyway, they, we have uh, meetings every week, and the person who runs this group is like a machine. Um, he's able to get these meetings ready every single Tuesday, but he spends most of Monday getting ready for these meetings by downloads all the. The tickets purchased from a ticketing system that is online. And then in spreadsheets, he's copying people's bios from the master list of members to the ones that are going to come to that meeting. Then he's adding in guests and he spends six, seven hours every single Monday. So I said to him, do you know, why don't we automate this for you? You know, we can do this by, by snapping some products together, the ticketing system, Google Sheets, uh, Zapier, um, and just copy the data over. And then and because of the way you get the data from this ticketing system, then we have to build some Google scripts. But this isn't like rocket science. You know, this is, you know, a moderate amount of coding to then transform that data and get it into a form and also have smart forms so that as he copies and pastes a a member's name in there, it goes out to a master list and copies in the right values so that, you know, so he's got one Google sheet that represents, and he can get back, you know, five of those six hours every Monday. So now that's somebody, oh, that's like two thirds of a day every week forever that he just, by doing some basic automation or a law firm that I'm working with, and I met with them for a completely different reason, but they have these big complex documents they have to put together because of the type of law that they do. Uh, and then we started talking about that and they spend two months every single year, the entire firm locked down while they're doing resubmissions of these documents to the, to the, all the states and the federal government. And so then we, we started looking at how they could possibly automate this and uh, again, it's about basically building a document assembly. This is a much bigger project, obviously, mm -hmm. but this could buy back the whole firm maybe five, six weeks every single year. Wow! You know, uh, because the, because we'd be able be able to create the documents, and then they just have to review them and deal with some exceptions instead of having to assemble. These are two hundred page documents, and sixty to sixty five of them every year they got to reassemble and resubmit because you have to get approved every year for this sort of thing. That's an example of, of workflow automation because they're just taking what they're already doing and we're just automating the steps that they go through to collect the information they need and then use that to make decisions about how to then put these documents together. You know, it's not magic. This isn't the, it's not machine learning. It's not graph data, network diagrams that you can drill in and drag cool things around everything you know it's not all that cool whiz bang but it is really cool when all of a sudden you've just transformed somebody's work life because you've made it easier because all this stuff is happening automatically now so i love that kind of opportunity i was just thinking about uh how much of the stuff that uh we've got a lot of things automated uh for our podcast workflow mm -hmm. but there are some some pain points that we could probably fix with some automation and will was uh, yeah, I was I was messaging Beach frantically because I was like, yeah, I've already kind of started working on some stuff that I haven't told him about because we haven't. Had a meeting. Uh, you know, we we're kind of behind on our quarterly, um, but yeah, like the ability to just you know pop out and fix some of this stuff is is huge. So yeah, 
Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I call it assembly plus scripts because a lot of times there's tool, <laughs> different tools out there that by themselves they won't give you anything, but you snap them together, and all of a sudden you've got a framework for a solution to that that automation issue. Yeah, it's almost like you. Uh, it's like the game of mousetrap, except it's a little bit more stable and it runs a business. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's uh, that's how a lot of this stuff feels because I've got Zapier hooks for you know a lot of things in our system and and you know IFTTT and I'm yeah. working on some stuff in Airtable for us so mm-hmm. yeah um, so speaking of you know startup struggles and and all that what what are the hardest things to deal with when you're building stuff for a small business or a brand new business. Um, uh, the hardest things to deal with when they don't pay me. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Oh, the, the second hardest. The second hardest thing. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that one. I don't know how. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sort of kidding. No, honestly. The hard- <laughs> I'm not kidding at all. It's yeah, right. True. Yeah. The hardest thing for, with startups um, is, first of all, is budgeting properly, right? That they understand what it's going to cost to launch because they never... They always think, okay, when are you going to finish, right? And I, my first answer to them is never going to finish unless your business fails. Because you know, if it's successful, you're just going to keep enhancing and enhancing and enhancing because people will want more and more and more. You know, it's probably the one in a million um, software products where they literally build one thing and, that's, and they, they're done and that's it. So, um, so I draw a graph out even before I engage them. Like I spent a lot of time pretty much trying to sell people on not using me because I give them all the stuff they don't want to hear. <laughs> and then if they still, but then usually they appreciate that, to be honest. So I'll draw a graph and I show them a line that's basically kind of a straight line. Obviously it's not, but it goes up to the, to the right on the graph. Um, and that's your cost. And then on the bottom, I draw a line that curves up. Right. And if you're a successful software business, launch will be somewhere, you know, an inch or two on the on the uh, straight line going up. And then you'll see that um, and th- you'll have MVP and you still won't draw the line up until you actually have version, you know, one, the MVP plus one. And then you start to curve that up. And if you're successful, it, that curve goes past your cost dramatically. But if you're not successful, then at some point you'll have to stop investing and then your software and uh, costs go down. So if people get really get that in their head, they will understand that, okay, this is a, I'm, I'm making a commitment to n- realizing that after I release this, I may have more investment to do on the software, or I will have more investment to do on the software, and that investment may increase. On the other side, I also try to get people to think in terms of marketing right at the very beginning, so that they are a st- figuring out their brand, their messaging, how they're going to uh, track their customer, what the marketing channels are, what they cost, and, and budget that in. And then, of course, the next thing is, how are you going to pay for it? If they, if they have um, uh, enough money on their own to do this, or do they have to go out and get investment, or do they have investors? And do the investors know how much they're going to have to commit to this? Um, this is one reason why those high-fidelity mock-ups really help, because a lot of times they don't have investors yet. They have enough money maybe to get version one, but not enough really to take the business where it needs to go. So then while we're starting to do the development, now they can take those cups out and look for people to invest to give them the seed that they need for the marketing. So that's the hardest thing is making sure that that people are really well prepared for what it takes to launch a company, right? If if they're going to, if it's just a single person and they're developing the thing themselves, and that's a whole different world. But if they're engaging a development team like us, um, then that's 
that's the, you know, then they really have to plan, uh, think ahead in terms of what it's going to cost them and, and when to start these various activities. Mm. Uh, the other thing is not necessarily with us. Um, it's with other uh, people that have engaged other teams. And there are a lot of really good teams out there, but there's also a lot of, of teams that don't have the discipline and the, the experience and the discipline and the protocols in place. Um, or and the communication to take a project from beginning to end properly. And the thing with people is they don't know when it's their fault versus when it's the developer's fault. And they'll struggle and struggle for months and months and months, a long time after they should have pulled the trigger and made a change. But then they're also afraid, who do I, you know, how do I find a team that knows what they're doing? Um, and uh, yeah, so that I don't switch to another team, it's going to be just as bad. So in fact, I'm just about to publish an article on, the 10 signs that your software project headed for failure, because I think that this is, people don't have something to turn to that helps them understand that, okay, this is your, what you're struggling with and the feelings of helplessness. And like, you feel like you have to be a watchdog and be pushing everything in Boulder uphill. These are all justified feelings, or maybe they're not, maybe it's, you know, and maybe it's you. So call somebody who's really good at this because I've talked to people where I realize it's not the development team. It's, it's the it's the client themselves and they just keep demanding new things and changes and they don't they're not clear in their description of functionality and they just and the developers are just being spun in circles right mm -hmm. and it's a totally and it may be a competent team it may not but that doesn't matter that clients got to get control of how they communicate and the expectations they set and have their own discipline first so because mm -hmm. they can't be successful no matter who they use yeah. right but most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the, you know, or I should say like m probably more than half the time, it's because they're working with a development team that just really isn't at the skill level they need to be for the complexity of the project that they're doing. Oh, uh, send us a link when you publish that article because I'll throw mm -hmm. it in the show notes for people. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to plug the article. I was just... No, no, but that sounds... I, I want to read that yeah, article. Sure. So I, I, I know our listeners will want to. Okay. So, All right. Uh, thanks. Guys, as developers, our job involves making dreams come true through technology. Sometimes those are our own dreams, and sometimes those are the dreams of others. These insights are from a man with experience making those dreams come true. David, we want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with us. How can our listeners reach out to you if they wanted to get in touch? Okay. Um, and uh, Will and BJ, thank you so much for. Uh, having me on the show as well. I'm, you know, it's been great and it's been fun. Um, uh, get a, to get a hold of me, uh, you can email me at david at techies.com. Techies is spelled T-E-K-Y-Z, uh, play on words. So david at techies.com. Uh, or you can call me. I'll give you my mobile number. You know, I want people to reach out to me. I really like talking with anybody that has questions. My mobile is 480-570-8557. All right. Well, thank you again. And guys, that pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, and this kind of this kind of fits in with uh, you know what what he was saying, you know, in a lot of respects. When you're developing software, if you can tie a problem that you have back to the financials that created the problem and work backward to fix the financials first, a lot of times you can get rid of the problem. 
And this is something I think a lot of developers miss. You know, we tend to look at things and go, how do I code around this? And a lot of times what you really want to do is you just want to get more money in. And that covers a myriad of problems uh, much easier. So if you're running into something and you're kind of hitting the wall with your ability to code your way out of it, start backing up and going, okay, what would happen if I could pull some levers here to get more money into the company where we could get more staff, where we could get better technology, where we could get training. You can fix a lot of your problems by looking at the financial aspects instead of the code first. And that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.